Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, it's been so fun just getting to be a part of the Colossae family. My wife and kids and I have felt so welcomed by you guys here in Tigard and the folks in Hillsboro and in Sherwood. We've had the privilege of getting to see God working in the different congregations, and it's been awesome. And so if you are somebody who's living in the Beaverton area or you're contemplating being a part of what God's doing in that planting work, I'd love to get to know you and um, get to connect with you. That would be awesome. And if you're not, I'd still love to connect with you. So um, let me pray for us, and we'll get into God's Word this morning. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that you um, reign and rule with grace and humility that you uh, shepherd us. We thank you that you've uh, revealed yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the scriptures, and through them we are able to know uh, you and uh, be wise in how we live. And so, God, we ask you, Spirit, uh, to shape us today, stir our trust in you and our affection for you as we engage what you have revealed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you are new with us uh, or uh, you have missed a week, we are in a series that we're calling Wisdom Literature. We're exploring three books out of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that explore the theme of wisdom. They draw wisdom from life experience, right? These are not theory books. These are really practical principles about how the world works and how to live well within it. Those are the two big questions that the wisdom literature is asking. Like, how does the world really work? And how do we live well within it? And so each book has some central claims, and they work together to form this very uh, balanced insight into how to live well within God's good world. And so we began with Proverbs, which makes this claim that all things being equal, the world is ordered and just. Like, it works according to a fabric. God has woven the world together, and if you work along the grain of that fabric, there is blessing and reward. And if you work against it, living wickedly, then there is folly and ruin. And that's, that's kind of the message of Proverbs. So it's this invitation to learn, learn wisdom. But then you turn the page, and what happens? You hit Ecclesiastes, and the message is all things are not equal, and the world isn't always ordered. So enjoy every moment you have. <laughs> like that's the best, like, thanks a lot, uh, Ecclesiastes, right? He's saying basically everything that you do under the sun is toil and it's vanity and it's like smoke. It's here one minute and it's gone the next. And so live to enjoy what's in front of you. Well, Job then moves from that place, right? It, it moves from this posture of questioning the wisdom of the Proverbs, right? If the Proverbs say that the world is ordered and just and Ecclesiastes calls all that into question, Job is living in the tension, right, between the way the world ought to be and the way the world is. And it begins to ask the question, is God even good? Like, can you trust him? Is he just? And so that's the question we're going to get at. And nothing raises the question of God's goodness and justice more than suffering, right? Like, when we suffer, when we hit moments of suffering, it squeezes in and it causes us to ask some very honest questions, about what kind of world we're living in, what kind of God is running that world, right? And how do I live with suffering? It's a universal experience, and it causes us to ask some really honest questions. And so we're going to take a look at the message of the book of Job. But before we do, I just want to show you how the message of Job works, okay? That it's actually a very simple uh, organization to the book, 
asking some of the most complex questions you can possibly ask in a really simple format. It works like this. There's a narrative prologue at the beginning that sets the stage. All the action really happens at the beginning and the end. And the two narrative sections, the prologue and the epilogue, the beginning shows you the trauma that happens to Job, and the end shows you uh, what God ends up doing about it and what finally happens to Job. The middle part is all poetry. It's 30-some chapters of poems debating uh, whether or not the world is a just place and whether or not God is a just God. And so Job's three friends join him, and they argue with him because what's better for suffering than somebody arguing with you? And then God shows up in a whirlwind, a hurricane-force wind, and has a conversation with Job at the end, answering Job in a way that brings about some transformation in his life. And so that's kind of the, the way that the book works. And as you read through it in your own life, you understand kind of how it works, that you're reading cycles of argument back and forth between Job and his friends, and then God answers. So with that, uh, what I want to look at today is just three things, like the occasion for suffering in Job's life, right, and the experience of suffering, and then finally God's answer to suffering. Okay, so let's, let's take a look at the occasion for suffering. The book of Job begins uh, with a non-Israelite, this person named Job, right, who lives in a far-off land, a galaxy far, far away, if you will, and the action is far from any historical concern. The author wants us to hone in on the story and the questions being raised. And so this is what he says. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep, 300 camels, 3,000 camels, excuse me, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. In other words, this is a great guy. This is the quintessential blessed person. He has abundance. He's clearly wise. He is the example of what Proverbs is talking about. This is the blessed person. And he has apparently like inordinately high insurance premiums for all of his property. Like I don't know what insurance is on a camel back then, but uh, apparently he can handle it. And so uh, he, he's just doing well. Like everything in his life is going really well. But it's not that he doesn't deserve it. He, he absolutely is exemplary in character. He turns away from evil. He's upright in all that he does. Okay, and so this guy's, he's blameless, which means that he's a perfect candidate for what's about to happen. Look at verse six with me. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Okay. So we've gone from the scene of prosperity and abundance to a scene change where we get the heavenly realms, right? We get this, uh, this scene where we see God in his throne and, uh, and he's having a staff meeting. That's what's going on here, okay? You have um, the sons of God. It's a word for angelic beings. These are spiritual created beings and they are reporting for duty, right? They're showing up to staff meeting and uh, they're, they're ready to take some orders. And among them comes someone called the Satan, Ha-Satan in Hebrew, okay? It's a title. It's not his name. 
It's actually just a title. It means literally the opposer or the adversary, one opposed. It's actually weird that it's always translated Satan in your Bible. It should actually probably, or transliterated Satan, probably should be translated as the opposer, right? The opposer came before the Lord, and here he is. He's like the opposing counsel in a courtroom, and he's this adversary. If you want to read more about the staff dynamics of God and his angels, you can read uh, Psalm 82. This thing is called the divine counsel. And so God is interacting with them, and Satan comes in and starts acting like he owns the place. How do you feel about that? I don't like it, right? Like I, this, this feels like, why, what's he doing there? I don't like that he gets an audience with God, but yeah, apparently he does. Right? And so we learn from Job some things that are going to happen. Let's look at what he says. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on all the earth. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God, turns away from evil. What is happening? Right, God, why are you entertaining him at all? Kick him out. Flick him with your big hand out of the, your, your counsel. Right? Well, no, Satan answers the Lord and says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all he has is in your hand, only do not stretch out your hand uh, against him. Right? So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, we have to be really clear here. Did Job do anything to deserve what's coming? No, not at all. He didn't do a thing. Uh, There is absolutely no sin here that is a cause of the effect that's about to happen. Now, don't get me wrong. We can invite plenty of suffering in our own life, right? I'm sure we can all give some pretty clear testimony as to how we have invited our own suffering through our choices, right? If you're a prideful person, you're going to pay Right? The prices of that. If you're a lazy person, you're going to suffer some consequences for that. When we're selfish, we deal with the consequences of that and we lose relationship or whatever. Right? We have all kinds of capacity to cause our own suffering. But that's not what's going on here. There's apparently a type of suffering that is innocent suffering. It's non-deserved suffering. And so there's this wager, a bet, that's happening in the heavenly sphere, in, the, in, the, in God's dimension, right? And there's a bet. Job is not a worm. He's not a worthless thing. How does Yahweh, the most high God, feel about Job? He esteems him. He thinks he's great. He's bragging on Job. He's like, hey, Satan, have you checked out my guy Job? He's awesome. This guy is amazing. There's nobody else like him. Check him out. He's a servant of God, and God delights in him so much that he's bragging on him. But then what does Satan say about the situation? He goes, yeah, you know, the way you govern the world, I I don't think it's right. That's what he's saying. He's questioning God's governing policies. He's saying, you know, you bless the righteous. But when you do that, all you're doing is you're buying their righteousness. He only does these things. He only serves you. He's only loyal to you because he's in a context of comfort and abundance and blessing. But the moment you take that away and put him in a context of affliction, I guarantee he'll curse your face. Why does Satan think this? Because his life philosophy is what's in it for me. As long as it's good for me, I'm in. I'm a selfish creature. And so... 
there's this beautiful warning for us right, in Satan's wager. There's a great warning for us. One of the most dangerous aspects of our Western life is our affluence. Whether you feel affluent or not, we live here on the west side of Portland, and if you're living here on the west side of Portland, there's a good chance you're far more affluent than the rest of the world. And so when we live in our affluence, we're often tempted to think that if we have what we want, we actually have what we need. We're tempted to think that if we have what we want, we have what we need. I was um, at my son's basketball game a couple weeks ago and hanging out on the sideline talking to parents. This is what you do, right? You're looking for a basket and chatting and oh, now it's an air ball let's keep chatting right and you kind of you do your thing and I was talking to this mom who's been a friend of ours for a while and she was just kind of recounting her story and she said literally she said well you know we we have great jobs and then we found each other we have spouses you know like so we got the good jobs in the 20s and now we got each found each other in their 30s and then you know, then we mid-30s, we had our kids, and so now we're in our 40s, and we've got our kids in our house and our jobs, and we've got some money saved up, so we're really good, right? And then she said this, word for word. She said, and as long as no one gets sick, we're great. As long as everybody stays healthy, we're good, right? That's life philosophy there, right? She just owned up to, like, this reality. I've got the stuff that I want, right? And so, therefore, I must have the stuff that I need, Right? And so it's, it's really happiness through possession. And so Satan is saying, like, that's what's really working for Job here for you. He's only righteous because you reward him. So God's like, well, I, I, I'll bet on him. Go ahead, take his stuff. Right? Just don't hurt him. And so one day, Job is out, and a messenger runs up. And the messenger says, Job, Job, all of your oxen and your donkeys have been stolen, and the, sheep have been, or, and the servants have been slaughtered. Right, and Job's thinking, okay, well, I, I think I've got a good policy on that. I think I can get some uh, return for that investment. Okay, we'll be okay. Right? And then another messenger runs up and says, okay, this time it was fire from heaven, and it burned up all the sheep and the servants with him. And he's thinking, well, I don't have that on my policy. Like, that's, that's just weird. I have just a fire from heaven. That's okay. Wow, that's, that's worth mourning. But then a third servant comes up, and he says, well, actually, raiders, they came, and they killed all your servants, and they took off with your camels. Oh, man, you touch my camels? This is not good. And then finally this fourth messenger comes and he says, Job, a great wind came and moved across the plain and it tore all the house down of your eldest son and all of your kids were in the house and it killed everyone. Okay, now Job, what's he got to be thinking? Oh, man, you can touch my camels, but you can't touch my kids, right? I've had like a stolen camel, but I've never lost a kid. Well, actually, I had a stolen Nissan pickup truck. I got it back. It was fine. I, was, I felt kind of violated for a while, and then I realized it wasn't that good of a car to begin with, and nobody really wants it. And so the reality is Job's occasion for suffering is catastrophic. Everything in his life, external to himself, has just been taken from him. He's lost property, and when you lose property in the ancient Near East like that, it's a shaming reality, right? Because now your standing in the society is has significantly decreased. But worse than that, he's lost the relationships he's had with his kids. And when you lose your kids, well, I can't imagine. I know some of you can. And it's a pain that is just grievous beyond words and description. But here's the deal. In the ancient Near East, when you lost all your kids, particularly all your sons, it meant that your name 
would no longer continue. No more generations of Job's line. Okay, that's, that means all future progeny are gone. All of his significance and identity stripped from him. It's, it's absolutely grieving to him. It's catastrophic. And the, and the occasion for suffering in our lives can take any shape. It, it can take all kinds of shapes. Some of you are suffering that kind of catastrophic loss right now, where there's a future you had planned and it's gone. Where there's a person you've loved and you've lost them. Where's a loss of relationship, a loss of community, a loss of standing, a loss of a dream, something that gives you joy or meaning or comfort or security. And when you lose it, it's devastating. And yet at the same time, you know that when you lose things and you experience devastation like that, it becomes an occasion where you experience God in a way you haven't before. Where you begin to cling to him because there actually isn't anything else you can cling to that can't be taken from you. The reality of God alone can't be taken from you. And so you cling to him in a way that, well, look what Job does. Look at what he does. He says in verse 20, Job arose, he tore his robe. He's grieving, right? He shaves his head to say, I'm sitting in shame. And he falls to the ground and he worships, which means he says, my life's still about God. It doesn't matter if I don't have my stuff in the context of worship, I worship God. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And so he holds on to his faith and yet things get worse. Now, we have to be careful comparing our suffering. Christians are great at this. I don't know if you've ever been in a suffering comparison game. Right? It it's, feels really great when somebody's one up in your suffering. Right? But we, we have to be really careful not to compare suffering to suffering. Because each story is different. Everyone experiences things differently. In Job's case, it goes from bad to worse. And so Satan comes before God again. And he says, okay, yeah, all right, you can take a person's stuff. But let me afflict him. Oh, now he'll, he'll curse you, right? And so he does, right? God says, okay, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. And so Job ends up with these just terrible boils and sores from like foot to the top of his head, just covered in that. And he's, the only comfort he has is to take a broken piece of pottery and just scrape himself off like, oh, like that. I mean, you, this, is, this is really bad. He's in terrible pain. And what's worse is if you read through the Hebrew Bible, you read through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you get to this place where God's about to bring his people into the land that he had promised them. And then he reads, or Moses reads off from the Lord some blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience in the land. He says, if you, if you obey Yahweh in the land, it'll go like this. It'll be great. And if you disobey and, you, and you're actually idolatrous, then guess what's going to happen? These, these curses. And listen to one of the descriptions of the curses for disobedience. Verse 35 in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will strike you on your knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. It is the exact same language of what happened to Job. You know what that means? It means Job is getting something he doesn't deserve at all. He's getting the punishment that he doesn't deserve. He's getting injustice. He's getting something that does not work right. And so the occasion for his suffering pushes him into this question because Job is experiencing the reality of a world that's not the way the world is meant to be. The world is meant to work 
in, in this beautiful fabric where blessing and righteousness always go together, but in God's world, it works that way. What Job's experiencing is this isn't God's world yet or right now. Okay, what do I mean by that? It means that in God's world, righteousness and blessing always go together, but it's not God's world. How, how is that the case? Well, look at what Jesus says in John 12 when he says uh, that uh, now is the time of, uh, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And he's, he's about to say, too, right, that uh, in this world you'll have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And you're going to see how he does that in the cross, right? But Jesus' assumption is that it's not God's world right now, that there's a ruler of this world, right? And it's the Satan, that God has given Satan a long leash, apparently. It's a leash, but he's on a long one. And so Job is experiencing the reality that the world is not as it should be because Satan is running things according to his policies instead of according to God's policies. And he's questioning all of God's policies. And so this is the occasion for suffering, that God permits suffering for reasons totally undisclosed to us. He doesn't ever answer why in the book, but he says, look, Satan is allowed to run the world for a time with limits. Which leads us to the next section of the book, the experience of suffering. What is it like to actually suffer for Job here? There's too much to get into all the poetry, but look at uh, chapter 2, verse 9. Job's wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Okay, so we're going to talk at the marriage seminar about some great things not to say to your spouse, all right? Whose philosophy has Job's wife embraced? Satan's, right? What's in it for me? Right? What's in it for me? And so she says, curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would talk. Okay, also maybe things not to say to your wife. Right? Um, but I guess if they say curse God and die, you can call her out for folly. Right? Or him. Right? So shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So right, the moment things got really difficult, right, and the moment things get difficult in our life, you're going to hear this voice. And this is the voice that says, you know, reject being loyal to God on the basis of the fact that he's God. Be loyal to God based on what you get. And if you're not getting anything, why don't you move on to another God to get what you want, right? Whether that's money or whatever that is. And so the Satan philosophy is at work here. What's in it for me? Really, this is the voice of relativism, right? That says, actually, life's about whatever you want, and you can serve God as long as it works for you. If, it's, if he's working for you, that's fine. And who defines what's working? We do, right? Yeah, that's all about us. Who's really the authority around here? We are. Which then leads to this contrasting voice. So there's the voice of kind of relativism that says, do whatever you want as long as it works for you. You can chuck God if he's not working for you, right? Or then the other voice, right? Which is Job's friends show up. Verse 11 uh, now, Job's three friends heard all the evil that had come upon Job, and they each came in his own place, Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. Now, they made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. Good idea, bad idea? Great idea, right? These guys are winning at this part of the story. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, right? This guy's a mess. And they raised their voices, and they wept, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. They embrace mourning with those who mourn. Good move, guys. 
And then they sat on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. This takes incredible discipline. I don't know if you've ever tried to not talk for seven hours, but seven days. They don't try to fix anything. They just sit with him. And I would say to you, this is great wisdom of what to do when someone around you is suffering. Because what do we want when we're suffering? Do we want you to fix it? Well, no, because we know you can't, right? When we're experiencing loss in a grievous way, you, you, we know you can't fix it. So we want your patience. And we want your presence. And that's what these guys offer. They come and they're present and they're patient. And this is a good start. This is a really good start. But they can't handle what's coming next. Job starts to share how he's really feeling. He starts to uncover what's really going on deep in his heart. And so he pulls a George Bailey, right? I wish I'd never been born, right? That's what he does. Like he calls down curses on the day he was born. And he says, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that was said a man was conceived. And he goes on and he says, I, I, it, it's not going good for me. My sighing comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water, right? I, I am in terrible trouble. And so his friends... His brilliant friends, what do they do? They start monologuing, right? This is a bad move, right? They start talking in a way that's like, okay, now we're going to fix you, right? Here's, here's what you need to do, Job. Um, we don't have time to get into all of it. Let me just give you a couple of examples of the kinds of things Job starts to say right? during his experience of suffering. Right? They say stuff like, well, as I've seen, those who plow iniquity... Well, they sow, uh, and they sow trouble, well, they reap the same, right? What's that implying? <laughs> yeah, you're getting what you deserve. You did something. I like that. Thanks a lot, Eliphaz, right? Like, behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, uh, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, Right? God's, you know, he's good. He's doing something that's going to be better for you. Right? Bildad, the shoe height. Oh, gosh, how long are you going to say these things? Defending his innocence, right? Oh, gosh, right? The words of your mouth are like a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. What a great friend, Right? Like, that's an unfriend moment, I think. So what's happening? So first, he hears the relativist voice of his wife that says, do whatever works for you, serve God as long, as long as that's working for you. But now he's getting the moralist voice of his friends. And the moralist voice of his friends is saying, here's how life works. If you serve God, he owes you. If you're um, failing to serve God right, then you're getting what you deserve, right? Moralists can never handle suffering, right? Because they're always thinking, well, God owes me. Right? God owes me because I'm doing the right stuff for him. He's getting the right behaviors from me, therefore I should be getting the right rewards. Right? And here's, here's what's happening for the next however many chapters until you get to God's response, is there's this unexamined assumption that the friends are making, and that's this. Um, this is how the, the tension of the rest of the book of Job works. That there's an assumption the friends make, and that's that God runs the universe according to strict justice. In other words, it's, kind of, it's this Newtonian view of life and moralism, and it's that there's always a cause-effect relationship between everything, right? Every action has an equal reaction, 
right? So if you've done something bad, you're going to get something bad. If you've done something good, you're going to get something good. And if you're getting bad stuff right now, that clearly implies that you did something wrong, right? So that's the way the universe works. So um, we believe God's good and just. Therefore, the only conclusion is you're not innocent. But Job wrestles the whole time in all of his poetry. He says, no, I'm innocent. I'm really, really innocent. And, I, you know, I thought that the universe worked this way. And I, I thought God was good and just. But I don't know if I can hold on to that because I know I'm innocent. And so these three tensions work against each other in all of the debates between Job and his friends. And that's, this is the cycle that goes through all the way until God answers And uh, one of the things that I love here about Job is he pushes really hard against God. Like he's honest and he pushes maybe too far, but he also stays faithful. And this is what he says in Job 13, verse 15. It's a beautiful articulation of faith in the midst of suffering. He says, though he slay me, right? And I'm feeling like he's slaying me. I will hope in him. Right? I'm still going to hold on to hope in him, but I'm going to be really honest, and I'm going to argue my ways to his face. Right? This is how you live in that triangle. Right? Like, I don't know. I, he, I feel like he's slaying me. I'm going to hope in him that he's good and he's just, but I'm going to be real here and say this is not the way it should be. And so Job eventually gets an answer, and here's the answer to suffering. Here's what we see in the answer to suffering. Job 38. God comes to Job in a whirlwind. It's a hurricane force wind. And so this is what he says. Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Like, go ahead. Just tell me. Were, were you in on that? Like, listen to the sarcasm of the Lord. <laughs> tell, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, right? You, you, you clearly know the, the, the measurements and dimensions of the universe. Or, or who stretched the line upon it and on what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or, uh, you know, who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and its thick darkness its swaddling band, God is talking about the, the crazy power of the ocean as if it was a baby that he wrapped in the, and he swaddled. That's how God's talking about this immense power. When you stand at the seashore, what does it feel like? Right? It's like, wow, this thing is big. I'm really small. Right? And God's like, yeah, it's, were, you, were you there? Did you swaddle it up? Oh, okay, that must have been me. That's that's what's going on here. And so God meets the accusations of Job and the friends. He he meets the concerns of Job that he's somehow unjust and incompetent to run the universe. And he takes him through about 70 questions that really poke into like, hey, do you... Are you intricately and intimately involved in the grazing patterns of the wild donkey? And the, and the mountain goat, like, sh- surely you, you must know how his nutrition works. Right? Or, like, the, the weather system. Like, you clearly understand how I keep fields that no human ever sees perfectly watered and lush. Like, you, you get how that works, right? 
And this is, this is how God responds. What's the point of all of this? Like, why, what, how is God's answer to Job even an answer? Right? Well, it's not the answer that Job wants. It's a totally different answer. The point of all of this is, remember the assumption that God runs the world according to a strict principle of justice, right? And, and what God is saying is, look, the perspective you think you have isn't, isn't even close to comprehending all of the complexities and intricacies of the universe that I'm running, right? I'm doing stuff that you can't even fathom, right? Are you really in a position to question my competence at running the universe, that's really what the effect of what God is saying. It's infinitely more complex, right? And so the answer isn't, well, here's what happened to you and here's why. And Well, I have this bet going on with Satan and it has to do with the nature of righteousness. That's like, and that, by the way, still isn't really an answer. No, he says, actually, I don't run the world according to strict justice at all. I run the world according to a much higher principle. That's called wisdom. Right? I have the wisdom to run this in a way that you cannot comprehend. And so Job, he responds in chapter 40. You can take a look at this. Chapter 40, verse 3. Job answered Yahweh and said, Oh, behold, I'm a man of small account. What, what shall I answer you? Like, oh, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth. I, I've spoken once. I'm not going to do it anymore. I will shut up now. And, and how does God handle that? God says, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. Dress for action like a man and I will question you and you'll make it known to me. We're going to talk, Job. You don't get to be silent. Silence is not an option when you're with me. We're going to relate and we're going to relate like grown-ups, okay? And he goes on and says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right, Job? And so eventually... Right? Because God refuses to accept Job's silence, God goes on. And he describes two mythical creatures, behemoth and leviathan, in chapter 40 and 41. These are these monstrous beings who have more power than Job, who are essentially these symbolic creatures of chaos. And God's showing them off, like, oh, you know. Like, let me tell you about leviathan. I've got him on a real short leash, and uh, he does whatever I tell him to, and <laughs> Right? And so he's talking about the chaos, these symbols of chaos, and he's saying, I've got that ordered. I've got restraint on chaos. I limit chaos, Job. Okay? And then Job answers. He goes, okay, 42, verse 5, he says, I had heard about you, right? I've heard about you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. It's a change of perspective. Yeah, I had heard some things about you, but now I see you. And then he says, therefore... Your Bibles will say, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Um, my, the, myself is not um, in the text. We just assume that himself is the object of his despising, uh, but that's not actually in the text at all. If you read the NASB, it will just say, I um, retract. If you read the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, it will say, I recant and repent. Right? And so what is Job getting at? He's saying, okay. I had heard about you, but now I see you. I've experienced something of you. And so I'm, I'm recanting my need for you to answer me because I actually can't judge you. I don't have the perspective. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the bandwidth to hold together why you do everything that you do. It's beyond me. And so he says, I'm gonna recant. I'll pull back my accusation and my need for an answer and I will repent 
or I will be comforted is another way that can be read. Like, I will allow you now to, like, comfort me instead of being against you. That's what he's doing. This is amazing. And so, what is it that Job saw? What did Job see that enabled him to pull back and go, okay, okay, Lord. Because it's one thing to kind of get shown up and go, oh, okay, well, you clearly get way more than I do, and now I'm just humbled. Well, that may be, I think that's a dynamic, but I think there's far more going on here. I think Job is fundamentally transformed. God asked Job a question when he says, ah, no, you can't be quiet with me. We're going to talk. He says, will you put me in the wrong to make yourself right? Will you condemn me to make yourself right? Job's answer, no way. I'm 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 done playing that game. But what's God's answer? How would God answer that question? See, God says, Uh, Actually, yes, I will condemn myself to put you in the right. I'm the God who will condemn myself to put you in the right. See, God reaches down to Job, right, and he says, look, I don't run the world according to strict justice. There's not a cause and effect for every single decision. Not every righteous deed is rewarded. Not every wicked deed is punished in this world. And here's why. If I ran the world that way, I would destroy evil, but I'd have to destroy you too. Right? And what does he do instead? He runs the world according to wisdom. And the wisdom of God, the New Testament tells us, reaches its climax in the cross. See, there's a greater Job. There's a truly innocent sufferer who suffers far worse than Job. There's a greater Job who comes, God in the flesh, Not aloof from our suffering, but as Isaiah says, a man of sorrows. Someone who is well acquainted with grief. God in the flesh, suffering with us, and in the cross, suffering for us. So that we could be in the right with God. Willingly condemned, as he did not deserve. So that we could be in right relationship with God. See, God runs the world according to the principle of wisdom. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, right, who are summoned to trust the gospel, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross is the height of God's wisdom to defeat evil by allowing it to do its worst, to absorb death into himself so that he could turn it on its head in the resurrection, to offer a life of blessing, to be the God who we cannot be torn from because he bonds himself to us and he is able to work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So if God would not abandon Christ, to the grave. He will not abandon you and I who are united to him. And so when we see the answer of God, that he will willingly be condemned so that we might be in the right, so that he'll suffer on our behalf, then you know what that does to us? That nourishes trust. That summons us to trust because we can sit here and go, you yourself have suffered unjustly for my redemption. And I can trust you. And so we move to the table So we can come and nourish that trust. 
Or we can take the bread and the cup that say to us, look at the wisdom of God. That he would suffer innocently. So the guilty can be clean. Right? So that the guilty can go free and be given new life. So that the shamed can be clothed. Right? So the fearful can experience power. So we come to the table to nourish our trust in the God who is with us and who is for us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your greatness. We thank you that your greatness is revealed in your gentle, humble wisdom that you would come near to us, that you would come as the greater Job to lead us to you, to restoration and to blessing. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name for what we receive here, your body and blood.